This week, we lambast our way through the indie sci-fi thriller titled The Signal. And along the way, we asked, did the director take a page out of Michael Bay's school of slow motion? Why do space aliens think blue duct tape uniforms provide a tactical advantage? And finally, why do filmmakers think flashbacks are a sufficient means of flushing out a backstory? Get ready to track the signal on this week of Force-Fed Sci-Fi. Hey guys, welcome back to another bodacious rendition of our podcast, the movie Bonanza Force-Fed Sci-Fi. My name is the robotic Shawn Michael Culp, and with me today is my buddy. I am the bionic Chris Rupp. Joining us on the mic today, we got our friend and producer... The red light, green light, Jeremy Kesky. Boo yeah. <laughs> get, get it? Red light, green light. Because it's a traffic signal. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, God. Don't quit your day job. <laughs> this episode, we know where it's going. <laughs> so that's right. This week we did uh, this indie film called The Signal. I don't know who put this on the list. I don't know if it was you or me. Uh, I probably did because I, when I was constructing the list i looked through what rotten tomatoes says were the best reviewed sci-fi films ever and okay. this was on it like okay well, and Lawrence fishburne's in it let's let's drop it in there and see what happens well it happened so yes, let's it let's tell the folks at home the synopsis of this bad boy okay so three friends by the names of nick haley and jonah are on a cross-country road trip looking for a mysterious hacker named nomad and when they think they found Nomad's hiding place, they are confronted by a mysterious entity that announces its presence through a mysterious signal. The three friends then wake up in a research facility where they are interrogated by scientist Dr. Wallace Damon, and they must hatch a plan to escape and find out why they are being kept prisoner. I like how you say hatch a plan. Like, well, well, really, that's that. there are two ways to describe that. It's either formulate a plan or... Or hatch a plan. What about construct a plan? That doesn't have the same ring to it. What? You construct a plan? Formulate a plan makes it sound like (laughs) Hannibal from the A-Team, and they're going to bust someone out of jail (laughs) using an incredibly complex theme and, you know, uh, uh, moves and a military theme that's awesome. And then hatching a plan, I think, always applies to escape movies. Oh, I see. When you said hatch, I just envisioned them sitting around a large egg just waiting for it to hatch and then up oh, there's the plan let's do it baby so thanks chris did you get a lot visual. of paint chips when you were a kid <laughs> i had uh i slept in a closet that's what jeremy said yeah <laughs> yes yes you did cover that <laughs> a lot of uh, growth a lot of growth. <laughs> in the closet so this film is directed by this guy named william eubank uh-huh. and, and he's had uh three films so far this is number two and I guess recently he, uh, this film's coming out. It's called Underwater, or it just did come out in January. Um, and then his first film they did is Love. Yeah, it's about an astronaut who becomes stranded in space, and that was oh, that looks good. That was an indie success. It uh, really kind of put his name on the map. I, I remember the soundtrack was scored by that um, the uh, pop punk band Angels and Airways before oh, wow. Tom DeLonge decided to. Uh, invest money in looking for aliens wait the lead singer you know that's what tom DeLong did now he kind of broke away from music he funds an institution that 
that its sole purpose is to look for extraterrestrial life. So he literally took angels and airwaves and just was like, I'm going to find them. Like, I'm going to find aliens. <laughs> what does he like? Because bl- I haven't won a Grammy in a while. <laughs> does he like just blast his music soundtrack in space? If, <laughs> like waiting for I someone to I hope the aliens there. are not attracted to either Blink-182 or angels and airwaves. I hope something a bit, <laughs> bit more high. Maybe John Williams just attracts them to Earth, I hope. <laughs> That is wow. That's something I never knew that. Fun facts, folks. Well, he also uh, William Eubank also wrote the film with his brother Carlisle and David uh, Frigerio, who I couldn't find much on him. No. Apparently, he's a a New York uh, theater director. Oh. So okay, I don't know. Maybe he's um, take that Adam Driver's character from a Marriage Story. <laughs> and this film stars uh, this guy named Brenton Thwaites. Yeah, who. I've seen him before in, uh, it was, what was it? Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man Tell No Tales. Which is the worst film <laughs> in the series. Yes, it is. Oh. Apparently <laughs> <laughs> we just burst Jeremy's bubble with that. Do you like it, De- Jeremy? Pl- Please, Jeremy, defend Dead Man Tell No Tales. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's it's... It's entertaining, absolutely. It's Johnny Depp, Pirates of the Caribbean. Isn't that the one with Ian McShane and Penelope yeah. Cruz? Yeah. It I, is, isn't it? And the, no. Oh, it's really no. bad. No, this no? is which, the one. This which is, one no. is Dead Men Tell No Tales? This, that's the most recent one with, um, shoot, I forget his name. Jeffrey Rush? No. Give me a moment. He's in like all of them. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, this so this one Depp. has, um, uh, what's his face? Um, oh, that's Javier, Javier Bardem. Bardem. Yes. yes, thank you. Yeah, this is the one where Geoffrey Rush's character dies. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Rush dies because he like falls down a giant. Oh, okay, CGI I think I was fall. mixing it up with On Stranger Tides. That one was the worst. Okay. I, I, I right. agree with now, you though. Dead Men Tell No Tales yeah. is actually Dead good. Stranger Tides, I liked. Oh. <laughs> yes. Well, this is a sci-fi Ooh. movie podcast. We can't go down the fantasy pirate trail. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> also starring uh, Olivia <laughs> Cook as Haley. Whoever um, the heck that is. She was on a uh, television show called Bates Motel a few years ago, which has served as the uh, the sort of prequel to the film Psycho. Oh, okay. With a I've young, Nor- kind of delving into how Norman Bates became, you know, <laughs> how that all came around. Uh, she was also uh, the female lead in uh, the Steven Spielberg adaptation of Ready Player One. Oh, okay. So she's she her career it seems like is probably blossoming more than these two. The yeah. other the guy, what is he what is he? Bea Bonap. Bonap Canap. <laughs> Please do not ask Sean to pronounce anything ever. <laughs> and this guy was in South You'd see Pamela and you'd say, Oh, Pamela? This guy's in Southpaw and run the night. Run all night. There we go. Sean, you did graduate high school, right? <laughs> I did. I don't know. They let him in the National Guard. <laughs> That's not much. They give you a crayon and well, say, he, scribble on this Bo piece Nap of was paper. in one of my favorite comedies from a couple of years ago called The Nice Guys with uh, Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. Oh, okay. Also, rounding out the principal cast, we get um, Lawrence Fishburne as Dr. Wallace Damon. Dr. Wallace, yeah, the legendary. Well, I guess maybe legendary. What is oh, he? he? Yeah, he's is legendary. he legendary? Yes. Yeah, he he was good in this film. The, there isn't much more we can say about Lawrence Fishburne. I mean, go back to our previous episode on the Matrix. <laughs> Do you think he's typecast as uh, Morpheus? Yes. I, I that's that's what I always think about when when somebody mentions 
Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. Even before even in this film. Even before he did Morpheus, he was always kind of in this mentor role, especially in um Boys in the Hood, where he, he plays um Cuba Gooding Jr.'s his character, he plays his father, he plays appropriately named Furious in in Boys in the Hood. So he's just kind of <laughs> teaching Cuba Gooding Jr. how to how to grow up and become a man and get an education and move out of the hood. Okay. I have not seen it. He's well. also in Apocalypse Now as a young lad. He like lied to get on the set. He was like fifteen. Yeah, he, he's also killed in Apocalypse he Now. He is also killed. Very brutally killed. <laughs> so Lawrence Fishburne, folks. <laughs> so what's the first thing that you would like to talk about with this? Because you brought up a really interesting question because this film starts out on a road trip. Yeah, I kind of want to get your guys' thoughts on you know, what are your rules of a road trip? I mean, we've all been on a pretty long one. I mean, I think the longest one I've been on is nine, ten hours. Oh, yeah. And, and these these kids, they're going on a cross-country trip from Massachusetts to California. That's a long trip. It's really long. That's days. I really don't think many people do that these days. No, I mean, most people can afford to fly. <laughs> right, because it's probably more affordable. Or even if it's difficult to afford, I bet they still prefer spending the money. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, but these kids decided to drive in right. a rinky-dick old car, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because it was, like, falling apart. Right. I doubt that that car would actually make it. No. <laughs> no, and that's the thing you don't take into account when you're doing a trip like that that is cross-country. You have to take into account that you are going to have to repair it at some point. Either you're going to need an oil change or uh, brake pads or tires or something. So you you got to find a repair shop or know how to do some sort of repair on the fly. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, to answer your question, I my rules for a road trip, uh, the longest one that I've been on, Probably about 13 hours. Oh, my. Where were you going? Uh, South Carolina. Oh. So, in any case, um, I like to get through road trips fast. Limited stops. So, don't drink a lot of water, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Dehydrate yourself. And other than that, uh, I don't know. I get to control the music. Well, I mean, well, you have a you have a, a small child. I mean, I mean, have your rules changed with traveling with a small child? Well, oh my goodness, I we did drive up to New York uh, this past the last summer, and that was quite a drive, I will tell you, um, with a with a one year old. Yeah, I we we just wanted to get through that as fast as we could. There were oh my gosh, like both times there and back, he was screaming and crying the whole way, and I could not take it. Oh, boy. God. I would even think like you'd have to leave the night before just so maybe he would sleep for most of the drive there. Well, you try to we tried to leave early in the morning so he'd at least keep sleeping. Right. (laughs) Didn't work. Did did you and your wife ever switch off driving? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think you have to on a a long trip. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, mean, for me, I think the longest I've gone on is... um, usually eight hours when I go up to northern Minnesota. And I always like to, my thing is I like to get uh, gas up my car the night before. That way I don't have to waste time trying to get on the road and doing it then. Um, also, I always leave super early. I always get up between like 3.30 a.m. and 4 a.m. 
and just book it. I bypass most of the traffic heading north, and by the time like traffic is supposed to get really bad, I'm already in the woods of central and northern Wisconsin, and traffic is just like, what traffic? That doesn't exist. <laughs> also, you need a cool like playlist for the first couple of hours. And then you could transition to whatever podcast audiobooks you want to listen to. <laughs> like the Forcefed Sci-Fi podcast? Yes. <laughs> or uh, also what I do, if I'm going somewhere, um, I think I did this when I went to Ohio a couple of years ago, I found a couple episodes of my favorite podcast, Small Town Murder, that talk about murders in a small town, hence the title. So I picked a couple of wow. towns from Ohio. And like, I'll cue these up and listen to these going to Ohio to, to, to pre-scare me before my trip. Nice. As long as you're not driving at night, I'd be freaked out probably. <laughs> I don't care about driving at night. It doesn't bother me. Well, I'm saying while listening to those. Yeah. <laughs> Someone jump out. What's that in the bushes? Again, it doesn't bother me. <laughs> no? What about you, Sean? Fearless man, Chris. I think the longest drive I've done is probably Minneapolis. I went. That's only six hours. Six hours that I drove myself, yeah. Okay. About six hours has been my cap. Because usually, like I drove, I never drove when I was a kid when we went to Florida. I just like sat and watched movies in the back, so it was very passive. Well, yeah, if you're driving there when you're eight years old, I mean, you, probably, <laughs> you should not be driving. <laughs> yes. So I mine's been about six, and usually I drive the whole way. Um, I just, snacks are cool. I try to do minimal stops, cruise control baby, 95 to 100 miles an hour freeway, and uh, yeah, I rock How out the you not playlist. been pulled over? <laughs> Luck. <laughs> luck is all i could say i think maybe it's because of the plates say army or it like has like an army thingy around it so that just gets you a pass i guess man <laughs> the force wet sci-fi podcast does not endorse speeding <laughs> no as fun as it is we do not endorse it <laughs> but if you'd like to go warp speed that's although i am a patriot and i protest speed limits by exceeding them anyways <laughs> <laughs> patriot chris everyone so that's our road trip and by the way if you do get pulled over never say to the cop that you are the nelson mandela of the highways <laughs> what because you will get a ticket what <laughs> i've never thought of that no that's like me getting pulled over and saying hey don't i pay your salary with or, my taxes or just have like a box of donuts in the front seat and just be like you want one? <laughs> so that's our rules of the road trip. If you want to let us know about yours, you can hashtag us, tweet at us, send us some messages. Um, what else about this film was intriguing? Let's let's maybe... I wouldn't exactly call it intriguing, but I will say that it does have a unique evolution to it. It starts off as this innocent road trip film for about the first 15 minutes or so, and we see some... Uh, character tension starting to build nick is probably going to break up with Haley. which by the way don't do that on a cross-country trip yeah <laughs> emotions that's are just how to make it awkward especially since it's her car right uh but jonah and nick are chasing this hacker nomad and it's implied before the events of the movie that nomad kind of caused them to be kicked out of mit yeah that's what then they were like really salty about it. So they wanted to go find him and do something. Whereas <laughs> poor Haley is just the voice of reason, like, just let it go. We need to we need to get to California. 
should have just listened to her from the start. What were they going to California for? Maybe the message of this film is just listen to women. <laughs> yeah. They have the better ideas. I wish they would have. That would have been a more interesting film. <laughs> right. That's why God invented man and whoa, man. Stop us from doing stupid stuff. <laughs> So there's, yeah, the characters, and I guess the first part of the film, they were supposed to be, like, logical guys, I guess, the way they talked, because they gave, uh, crap, what was his name, the main character, I totally forgot his Nick. name. Nick. Nick, the marker, and he was, like, weirdly carrying around a marker the first, like, 15 minutes of the film where he would write on walls, write on little machines, like claw machines, just talk to children, random children. Well, and it's like a dry them. erase marker, so it's not like he's drawing on claw machine windows with a Sharpie. Yeah, but d- is that what you do, Chris? You walk up to children at the bowling alley? Hey, you want to know how to get that Pikachu stuffed animal? Here. No, I do not do the Draw- goodwill hunting <laughs> treatment to random people I meet. And that is exactly what this guy was like. He was like so ham-fisted as like this logical goodwill hunting man. Well, it's weird, too, because we, we get these... I think the 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 appropriate term would be flashback, but they're really more as a character development device. Yeah, and it's weird. Instead of developing the character with the story, they're like, "Uh, here you go. Here's here, let's explain scene. it in flashbacks." <laughs> but it didn't it didn't even do that good of a job. I feel no, like. it would just be scenes of him running aimlessly through the woods and then standing in front of a river that's flowing, and you're like, "Oh." Does he fall in the river? Well, we like, see Nick that he's afflicted with this degenerative disease. It's never explicitly said what it is, but w- I think the flashbacks are meant to show that he was able-bodied at some point. I mean, I got it the first one, but by the 15th time of him running, it was It's the like, same flashback. It. <laughs> they only have enough money to record like three, and they're like, maybe we'll just insert them. Right, I you know I did appreciate that the the stark contrast between those two scenes. You know, the at, at first you know you see them in a desert, and then his flashbacks are in a nice green forest. You know, I I, I appreciate that, but then like you said, John, it's like over and over and over. Okay, we get the point. Yes, where is this leading to? <laughs> well, then I'll, and then Jonah, who's supposed to be. His best the ever intrepid best friend and sidekick. He disappears for most of the yeah. that f- end of the first act and into the second. Yeah, you mean Hulk? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes. Jonah's forced with Hulk hands while Nick is fitted with proportionately correct bionic legs. Yeah. So they, they, which I will have to say, I did appreciate that twist in the film. The twist, so that's when the film got good to me. Once, because I, right, so basically a breakdown. They like get kidnapped or what abducted. I would call it abducted. Abducted because they think they found where Nomad is, and uh, it ends up just being like twenty five minutes of them being in this hospital esque government facility, which is Lawrence Fishburg, or talk, so we think. Yes, interviewing Nick. And then nothing really progressing. You think Nick's talking to Jonah. Nothing really happens. And then he tries to escape multiple times, foiled. And finally, the reveal of the legs. And that's when it really gets good. Because that was like, I guess, the trope for these guys. Their little tick. They lose hands, legs. The chick has a thing in her back. So you mean to tell me that Nick never had the desire to lift up the sheet to look? I know. 
that was my thing. I'm like, what? It took this long? You yeah, it took falling? you 20 minutes to fall off the chair and be like, oh, my 20, legs. 20 minutes. I paused it. It was like 55. And I'm like, dude, well, then he's- this film is... 30 minutes left. Well, then he's freaking out and doing and making every effort he can to cover them up. Like, dude, you are now able-bodied. Yeah, you can walk. Your legs work. <laughs> they will continue to work. You know why? Because they're biotic. <laughs> I liked how he just walked right up to the glass window that Lawrence Fishburne is looking. He just puts his face in it. Like, Does he see you? Like, what's going on here? Yeah, he didn't give you bionic eyes. That's why I started picking apart the film. Yeah, just and, couldn't. And I Nick has. I don't understand his motivations because all we really know about him heading into this was he was abducted. He was thinking about breaking up with Haley. They've been together for some period of time. It's not exactly sure. And then he gets bionic legs. Although it was, I don't want to say it was comical to watch him escape with while trying to escape with her while he's in the wheelchair. It was not comical because I don't think he had figured out that his legs had were bionic at that point. Mm-hmm. But it was like, oh, crap, I'm I, I'm stuck on the corner here. Right. We can all sympathize with something like that. <laughs> I mean, I, I commend his, uh, his, you know, audacity to try, you know, being stuck in a wheelchair. But, right. It's but the- we got it by, like, the second time. All right, he's stuck here. Maybe his resiliency... Well, yeah, and how dense are the people working in that facility to not see that, hey, somebody that we're keeping hostage here is dragging somebody out on a gurney? Like, <laughs> how does how do six people not see that? It was turning into a James Bond-esque film. <laughs> right, one of the more ridiculous ones with Roger Moore. <laughs> Where they're in space! Yes. Uh, but finally, when they do escape, I think that's when it gets cooking. And... You see, he gets like the message from Lawrence Fishburne's character: "Don't go up there. You're gonna see things that aren't natural or mm-hmm. whatnot." And that's when we get the most bogus people, the weird, baffling locals. I guess you could call them. I don't know. What are they? Robots? Aliens? It's hard to describe what they are because it's it's something that's never answered in the film. Yeah. We do find out at the very end that turns out this whole environment is this floating space station surprise surprise <laughs> here's here's a rod serling twilight zone twisty for you and that lawrence fishburne is a bionic alien i don't know i, I guess yeah uh and, and the numbers equal 51 if you add them all up <laughs> so stupid there's this dumb gotcha oh we're in area 51 man see this is why i don't think that the film is is like a true film. It just feels like a really long episode of the Twilight Zone or may have been better served as sort of uh, an entry in the Black Mirror series. Yeah, that would be nice. I, I was thinking that when I was watching this. Like, this would work as like a Netflix original, like little TV, but it would, this is not a movie. <laughs> no. This is like a B movie, you know? Like how back in the day, maybe 20 years ago, you knew when something was B movie material but this somehow got great cinematography decent special effects and Lawrence Fishburne so it somehow made it into the market which again we kind of have to wonder how much of Lawrence Fishburne's salary is part of that four million dollar (laughs) budget well enough because it's probably three million (laughs) because the tactical (laughs) outfit was blue duct tape 
<laughs> what the crap, man? Like, are you kidding me right now? That's but they're the, robots. They don't care. They have camouflage duct tape. It's there. But why blue? You stick out like a sore thumb. Well, if you're chasing people in hospital gowns, I think well, they kind of stick out as well. So I, I, I think thinking, it's kind of a moot point there. I know. I was thinking that when he goes into the truck stop, like trying to look all nonchalant. I'm like, dude, you're wearing a hospital gown. No like, we're out of blue duct tape. What are we going to use? Neon green. Do it. <laughs> uh, but that was a good disguise of the CGI legs with the pants. Having them wrap it, I thought that was a pretty yeah. That's how good you trick. that's how you can kind of cheap up the production a little bit. Mm-hmm. It <laughs> like, was listen, we don't need to CGI his legs because we don't see his legs. <laughs> <laughs> They're duct tape under the hospital pants. Uh, what did you like about this film? <laughs> Maybe we can. It's it's weird because I kept waiting for the film to start really, really cooking, like you were saying, and I think when when Nick and Haley really do escape is sort of the end of that whole progression. It was when they're abducted by the EBE, which just call it alien. Then we just it's shorthand for alien. <laughs> and it, in, until that point, and I would say maybe that was what about 50, 55 minutes into the film where that just abruptly stopped because then we meet that weird character of Mirabelle and she's muttering nonsense about angels and horns in the sky and all that. And it's then we meet James, the creepy truck driver who tries to take Haley, which very Texas chainsaw massacre. It's I, the film just jumped the shark at that point when they're on the surface and trying to escape. It feels like three different films. Yeah. Because you have the beginning where they're doing road trip and it's like the old uh, teenage, you know, what is, what would that be? A coming of age film. And then once they get kidnapped, it's like a weird thriller, mystery, what the hell's going on, horror film-esque. But then it becomes like this weird action, thrill ride, like, oh, we got to save the girl and figure out where we are and get out of here, you know? It just, with sci-fi elements mixed in it's just they couldn't figure out a spot and like sit with it and then we forget about poor jonah yeah until he, we see his hulk hands he's gone <laughs> it comes hulk back. smash yes that you were talking about that that's what you did when you were watching i it. absolutely said that while i was watching it what, it what did, hilarious what did heidi say she just gave me a, a stare and you know the wife's stare. You're an idiot. The, the stare of a thousand words. <laughs> just, just be quiet. Because this film has slow motion scenes in their action scenes, and with Jonah, what he he's like pounding the ground. To I think help that's them a escape. I think it's a good opportunity to discuss what our lens flares yes. were for this film. Um, so many. <laughs> Jerry, let's start with you. What what was your lens? No, flare? I don't want to go first because I don't want to take. You've got guys. so many. Go, go, go. Do it. Go it. <laughs> All right, let's start out with a, a few of the simple ones. What was up with the red briefcase and the gun inside of that? Like, why why are you carrying around a gun inside a red briefcase? I don't know. Sticks out like a sore thumb. Because it looks cool. <laughs> so that's number one. Number two, we kind of touched on. Uh, the flashbacks, uh, and then number three, we also kind of touched on the slow motion, and then I I don't know if you guys noticed this too. Uh, number four, there were so many close ups of Nick's eyes. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. like, why are we so close to Nick <laughs> so many times? 
It's like this, like how Quentin Tarantino loves feet. This director just loves close-up eyes. Once you realize that Tarantino has a foot fetish, you you notice it in every movie, though. <laughs> every single one. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually, until you said that, I never really thought about it. And then you watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it's like feet, 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 feet. <laughs> Here's Margot Robbie's feet. Here's Margaret Quayley's feet. Here's Brad Pitt's feet. Everyone's feet. <laughs> I've said it before. I just know he has a shoebox in his closet. It's just full of pictures of Uma Thurman's feet. <sighs> well, did you guys have any lens flares that I didn't name off? Mine was the the slow mo, but particularly during Jonah's big um, hero scene, where he's trying to he's shot a couple of times in the chest, and he's going to free them from the concrete barrier. It's the it's the Hulk smash moment. And it's like William Eubank called up Michael Bay. Like, I'm trying to do an action scene, but I don't know how to get the point across. And Michael Bay just went, slow-mo and explosions. (laughs) (laughs) That's all he said. Yes. That's all he said, and then he hung up the phone because he's not working these days. (laughs) Um, What about you, Sean? Lens flare. Um, Mine was, the first was Nick, how he had that stupid marker all the time. I was like, oh, man, is this going to be a thing? where he just always has the marker for everything. But then it disappeared randomly, so that was good. Um, And then the big truck flip scene, where like at the end with the barrier, it's slow motion where they flip, and then it goes to a flashback, and then all of a sudden they appear right outside of the truck. So we like miss this like big portion inside, like how the frick did they get out? And then the flashback was just so off-putting. You're like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, the slow motion of that truck took so long. It's like, okay, we get it. We get like, it. all right, I'm gonna go get a snack. <laughs> but the truck will still be rolling. Like, like when we it happens in Dark Knight and they flip the truck. That's cool. But this, it just takes too many times. We we no, get it. We get the it. The truck in the Dark Knight flipped long ways. This yeah. flips short ways. I know, and it took longer to. Right. It's like, what's going on? We get it. You man. probably could have finished watching The Dark Knight in the time it took to watch that truck flip over in the signal. Uh, those were my two. That is good. Those, I think we nailed all the flashbacks, all the freaking lens flares. Well, what about a red shirt? Uh, I don't know. I I, don't know. I had an almost red shirt. An almost red shirt. Well, it, in particular, it was a scene where um, Damon and the other scientists are in the control room, and they're looking into this room, and there's a cow tethered to it. Now, normally on this show, when we see a barnyard animal in a testing room and the lights go out, nine times out of ten, when the lights come back on, that cow is going to be splattered all over the room. Except that did not happen in this case. I full-on expected some type of laser gun or signal to just turn the cow to just totally eviscerate it. But instead, what we get is a chair flying out of nowhere into the window. (laughs) And it's never explained who threw the chair. (laughs) If it was Jonah who got into the testing pen and threw the chair, or if the cow just got mad and went and threw the chair. That's what I thought. I'm like, is this a crazy cow? So we got angry cow throwing chairs at the window. I think that cow should just be lucky. It's feel lucky. It's still alive. Yeah, that's hilarious. 
Boom. Maybe it was a French cow and they didn't give it enough baguettes. No, in that case, it'd be me. Me, what's this chair doing in here? Someone come nuke me. I am full. Me, me, I need more cigarettes. A smoking French cow. Oh my goodness. This this podcast has gone off the rails. <laughs> so, what about you guys? Did you have any? Red, did you have a red shirt? No. I mean, the closest thing would be for me would would be what was her name? Mirabelle. 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 I, I I mean, she was like the nicest old lady. I mean, crazy. But. She's just a little nuts, right? <laughs> and then her nose started bleeding, and Dame is just like, "Well, I have the cure for that." Yeah, that was so weird. <laughs> Instead of just giving her a Kleenex, like, "Oh, I'm just gonna shoot you in the chest now and Pulls call it out. a day." Pulls out his red suitcase. Yep. With the, <laughs> all the for, space in the world for a gun. <laughs> the biggest suitcase for a freaking pistol. It's like, dude, just wear a shoulder holster and <laughs> call it a day. <laughs> Why? <laughs> but he's an alien. I mean, he probably wouldn't know, like, how does one carry a gun? In oh, a- come on. <laughs> <laughs> they, can, they have a giant space city. They know. I mean, you never know. Well, let's talk about the ending, though. Because it has, I mean, Nick in an effort to escape the confrontation from Damon and the soldiers, he activates bionic powers and runs himself out of the glass containment wall. Turns and, into the Flash. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of was hoping that it would be a Justice League prequel. <laughs> <laughs> and then he escapes and's like, I need to adopt an alias, Barry Allen. <laughs> I move to Star City. Yes. And then we see, and then he we see Damon catches up to him really fast apparently and he pulls off the the helmet and turns out spoiler alert he's a alien robot and they're on yeah. this floating spaceship and I don't get why they look like humans what yeah. Okay anyways what's the point <laughs> I don't know why why do they have like why why you know I, there's a theory of about that, um, and it goes back to the supposed Roswell incident and all the alien imagery and iconography we saw after that. You know how they kind of all, the aliens on anything, any lunchbox, comic book, book cover, television show, all kind of look the same with the mm-hmm. the big heads and the and the weird eyes. Supposedly that that's because the government is slowly kind of drip feeding us images of aliens in the event that first contact does happen. We're not going to be freaked out by the appearance of aliens because that's what that's the image we've been seeing for the last 70 years. Hmm. Take that for what you will. It's possible. It's possible, <laughs> but I mean, maybe it's just, you know, hey, it looks freaky and cool. But Lawrence Fishburne was basically like wire man. He was a bunch of wires with this little. Well, maybe their base appearance is that of just robots and right. they adopt just like, oh, you're human. We have human. We have human faces all ready to go. <laughs> like Game of Thrones. <laughs> the ultimate AI. Game of Thrones. I don't want to get too too far down the whole Game of Thrones nerdy rabbit hole there because it'll just bore you. It probably will. Yeah. <laughs> but the ending was off-putting. You see him break through, and you get this beautiful city in front of you, and it's like, wow. And then the film ends, and you just go, I really wish we could have discovered that city. There could have been more taking place there because that would have been a more interesting film. You know what was missing from that end shot of the space station? 
do 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 yeah, like a Twilight Zone episode. Man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what it freaking felt like. Just yeah. well, before we subject ourselves to too much more of the signal, let's briefly talk about the legacy of the film. Mm-hmm. So, gross just under two and a half million dollars against that mentioned four million dollar budget, but did earn an additional eight hundred thousand dollars in home media sales, but. I mean, still, the film did come under budget and holds a 60% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which I feel might be a, if if feel it is fair. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the larger audience is going to quite grasp the true meaning of this film because no one quite knows what that true meaning is. It's never exactly clear. I mean, you can make an argument that it's humanity or it's morality or it's consequences, but it's it's never clear. The theme is evolving throughout the film. You can never pin it down. And I don't mean that in a good way. <laughs> and as Sean mentioned at the top of the show, William Eubank recently directed the, uh, I guess, deep ocean monster film Underwater, but this was a commercial flop mm-hmm. and mildly received by critics. But I And I think given the lackluster reception for The Signal and for Underwater, I think Eubank may now find himself in director jail, <laughs> kind of hoping and waiting for his next next project to come along. <laughs> director jail? Director jail. You, may, you, you do a couple flops in a row, and then you're, you don't get work anymore. Hmm. I w- I'd second that. I'm good. Yeah, we don't need any more of his stuff. <laughs> I'm good. Eubanks who? Yeah. <laughs> hey. hey. <laughs> so, with all that in mind, let's rate the film, shall we? Mm-hmm. On our unique scale on the Force Fed Sci Fi podcast of would it watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party. Let's start with you, Sean. What do you give to 2014's The Signal? Hmm. I would probably, I'm going to do a would not watch. I'm good. It's just. There's some great moments in it, great cinematography. There's some, like, Lawrence Fishburne's performance is great. Um, but it just doesn't make up. It's an hour-long snooze fest at the beginning just with clunky dialogue, crappy character building, lost themes, and just confusing <laughs> flashbacks and editing where you're just left there going, what's going on? So I just, I don't think the ending could save it for me. So this is, I'm never watching this again, and I'm happy. So that's that's simple, sweet, I'm good. How about you, Jeremy? I would say that I'll, I'll, I'll give this a little bit better of a rating. I would say I would watch. And I think the elements of a decent movie are there. The execution, though, is very poor, I, I at least in my opinion. Like you said, there's a lot of confusing parts. I would love for this story to continue. I think this would be a decent origin story, actually. And then leading into, you know, something else. What? I don't know. I mean, that'd obviously be up to the to the uh, movie makers. But in any case, I mean, there were there were some nice, um, nice filmmaking aspects. You know, I. Like I said earlier, I, the the contrast of him running in the forest and the flashbacks, and then them in the desert—you know—that's that's a really cool technique. But you don't need to do that so many times. And then, 
just those those lens flares it's like cut those out a little bit and maybe it's a decent film and cut the film down a little bit but yeah i i I mean i i would probably maybe catch this maybe a couple more times in my life i i wouldn't mind watching it but um mostly i probably won't go out of my way to see it if i if it's just on somewhere i might take a look at it again well, uh, I'm going to have to agree with Sean for the signal. I would call this a would not watch. You know, as we talked about earlier, it does unfold in a way that is certainly unique, but it ultimately feels more like an episode of The Twilight Zone or Black Mirror than it does a major motion picture. I mean, if you if there is a reason to watch this movie, it is Lawrence Fishburne. I mean, he very coldly and calmly navigates the scenery he's a very eerie presence in the film's middle and final acts but as i an analogy i used earlier if this film were the titanic and it's sinking lawrence fishburne is the one extra watertight compartment that's totally preventing the ship from going under and the i in the film is too broad it has too broad of a theme for it to feel compelling it's the, the theme of humanity as a theme that's in literally every single movie that's ever been made. <laughs> so to address it as humanity with bionics isn't something that's going to get me excited to watch it. So that's my review. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> Sweet. So now we're done with this. We yeah. can go on to the next. Yeah. Let, let's hope uh, our friendly random number generator AI, Major Samantha, picks a better film for us to watch. I'm hoping. So, and from our list of 118 films, Major Samantha has selected number 95. We are returning to a franchise we've covered before. It is 1989's Back to the Future Part 2. All right. There we go. All right, I'm down. All right, giggity. Ah, sweet. Sweet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'll be our film for next time. Yes. So please watch and enjoy with us. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Forcefed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the Forcefed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time. Force-fed sci-fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design, associate producer, and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.